You're listening to Changing Reality. Changing Reality, where we bend reality all across the world. Only on WQHS Radio. So hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Changing Reality. Welcome one, welcome all, and happy new year for all of you who are tuning in for uh, the first episode of the new year and maybe you're still uh, getting to know the show again, you're back uh, from your holidays in December. Well, don't worry, we've got an exciting episode planned for you, getting all of you ready to start the new year the right way. So if you guys are new to the show, if this is maybe your first time tuning in, welcome to Changing Reality. This is a show where we feature phenomenal people from all walks of life who are, in essence, changing their own reality and the reality of those around them. So through the show, we'll be hanging out and interviewing social change makers, entrepreneurs, business pioneers, to artists, musicians, and inspiring individuals from all across the world, and many who spent some time from the Penn campus as well. So by hearing these inspiring stories of how they are changing reality, hopefully we'll be able to pick up little snippets of wisdom and nuggets that we can use in our own life to create the lives that we want for ourselves too. And I'm someone who truly believes in the power of stories and how stories can change the lives of not only ourselves, but the people around us too. And I wanted to do this show simply because I feel like there are so many stories of people who have made waves in the lives of those around them who do phenomenal things. And I'm passionate about uncovering them so that you and I can learn from these hidden gems of experiences. And to personally show you how much I believe that the power of stories has the potential to change your life, I actually founded and run a youth movement called Ascendance in Malaysia, which is where I'm from, which today um, collaborates with global organizations, uh, ministries of education, large multinationals to help provide an, an alternative education system for any student out there who wants to change reality. So we work with students from elementary to college through various sessions, programs, experiential learning activities, and projects that help them discover what it is that they're passionate about, learn about themselves through real-world experiences, uh, experiential learning exercises, and start their own careers while they're still in school so that they can create meaningful impact not just for themselves, but for those around them as well. And to date, we've been fortunate to work with over 35,000 students in over 900 communities and have incubated, and have incubated countless number of student-run projects, startups, and social enterprises run by kids aged 8 to 25 years old alone. And the basis for all of that has been stories. It's been kind individuals who've been willing to share their experiences, their journeys, so that students like you and me can kind of like shorten our learning curves and start living the lives that we want even right now. So just like that, I hope that this show serves as a similar platform for all of you to actually discover what it is that you love and help you live the reality that you want. And today's speaker or today's guest that we have on the show is someone who will definitely inspire no matter who you are, where you're from. Uh, he's not just someone who was an alumni here at Penn, but he's also someone who is incredibly successful. So today we have with us the CEO of Restaurant Brands International. So a $5 billion public company, uh, this amazing CEO, Mr. Hosea, oversees, I think, three of the world's, uh, I would say easily, the world's most iconic, popular, and loved brands. So Restaurant Brands International brings together uh, your favorite iconic brands, Burger King, Tim Hortons, uh, Popeyes, and I think recently um, they're adding Firehouse Subs to their collection as well. So he brings uh, to his role over 20 years of track record and experience-driven results uh, at leadership at Burger King, and uh, even prior to his role serving as the global president. So today, RBI generates 32 billion in system-wide sales, and they have over 27,000 restaurants in more than 100 different countries. Amazing, right? Jose, our speaker, uh, was also formerly on the board of directors for Carol's Restaurant Group. Uh, Burger King's largest franchise and several, uh, there's a several co-chairman of Burger King's um, foundations. And other than that, he's also someone who has been such an inspiration. He's done many interviews at Penn. Um, he was a student who studied actually um, here at Penn's law school. So definitely someone who is extremely inspiring of how he actually started off doing one thing and today is the leader of one of the world's largest corporations. So without further ado, let's bring Jose onto our virtual stage. Hello. Hey, Marcia, how are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for joining in the show. I know you're traveling this morning. So how has your day been so far? 
My day's been great. I, I just got in from uh, from Istanbul, so I was uh, I was there for a few days for some business meetings, and uh, it's a it's a long trip. It's I'm in Miami, so it was about uh, 11 and a half hours to and from. Uh, but uh, but we had some productive visits there. We have a, a very successful and large franchisee based in Istanbul, and I spent some time with them. So it was uh, it was great. It was very productive. Okay, that is absolutely insane to think about that you have this brilliant jet-setting lifestyle, you're traveling the world, and at the same time, you make time to speak to alumni like us. So thank you so much for actually agreeing to be on the show, and it's absolutely amazing to have you. I'm so curious, though, how, like, I think the idea of someone running all of our, I, I would say, the most popular brands that currently are out there, the food industry is absolutely insane. And I would love to get into your journey and how you started. But I actually read somewhere that your family was in the restaurant business when you were growing up, right? Yeah, my, my dad was uh, was in, in the restaurant business here in, uh, in in South Florida. So my parents are Cuban. They they came from Cuba in the in the early 60s, they met in Miami uh, uh, back in 62, 63. And, uh, and then my father uh, started to work in, in restaurants. He was an hourly employee. And um, you know, over time, he, he grew into different roles and he became a manager and then a district manager. And so when I was growing up, um, he was a, a district manager for, for several locations here in South Florida. My, my parents split and divorced when I was about 10 years old. And I remember um, uh, very fondly that my dad would uh, pick us up, um, my, my sister and myself, but typically it was myself at this point, I was you know, 10, 11 years old. And he'd, he'd take us, he'd take me to the restaurants. Uh, and there was one in Miami Beach, it was a Lums. It was a casual dining restaurant that served uh, great uh, hot dogs and, and big, uh, big fries. Anyhow, he'd, he'd drop us off, uh, drop me off at the, at the store I'd, I'd meet the manager, the, the waitresses, the cooks, and then he'd go around and do his other visits to the other stores. And, and I remember sitting in these restaurants um, as a kid, and I didn't know anything about the business, but I, I really enjoyed the, the, the camaraderie, the teamwork, the way people interacted um, as employees and members of the same team trying to, to accomplish a common goal. I, I played sports and I could always equate uh, that that same teamwork in, in in a restaurant to what I saw in, in the in the field of uh, of sport and so I I just I just really enjoyed that and thought it was a, an amazing experience on, on the other hand my mom was a teacher uh, and she was always um, very focused on on education and making sure that uh, myself and my two younger sisters that, that we studied hard went to the best schools and, and so the combination of, of those two things really had a, an impact on me growing up as a, as a young boy in, uh, in Miami. Absolutely brilliant. And I think like it kind of shows that this whole uh, love for the industry kind of like is in the blood, don't you think? Or at least I'm sure that growing up has had some impact on what you do now. But how actually did you like, was this always in the sense the path that you wanted to take? I know that you actually like studied law. So how did you go from growing up in this environment um, and figuring out what you wanted to do even before your time at Penn. I know that you were considering a career in communications before you actually switched over after an internship, that a very high profile internship that you had to the uh, law arena. But tell us a bit about that journey and how you actually got there. Yeah, I, I had no idea at any point up until probably you know 20 years ago that I was going to be in the restaurant business. Um, so, so growing up, uh, coming out of high school here in, in Miami, I went to um, uh, to Tulane. I first went to Marist College in Poughkeepsie uh, to play football up in New York. Uh, and then I, it was too cold for me. So I, I transferred uh, to Tulane in New Orleans, which is a, a bit more of my climate. And it was a great, a great city and a great uh, university. Uh, and so I, 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 I went to school there and I was studying communications. I, I really liked to write and, uh, and felt that a, a career in, in, in that field would be, would kind of fit my skills and my and, and my uh, passions. And, and then uh, in the second semester of my sophomore year, I, uh, I did an internship at the U.S. Attorney's Office in New Orleans. And, uh, and it was amazing. I, I really had a, a wonderful experience. There was only for probably six weeks, eight weeks. Uh, but I, I got to see uh, how uh, lawyers and teams supporting the lawyers uh, worked on, on big cases. And, and even though I was a very uh, you know, low-level intern at the time, uh, the, the atmosphere was reminiscent of what I mentioned earlier in, in the restaurants and in, the, in, in sports, which there was a lot of teamwork and people working uh, passionately uh, behind uh, a common goal and, and trying to achieve a, a common objective. And so 
that really inspired me. I, I looked into it more and more and, um, and then got a, a, a second uh, internship the following year at a private law firm, a big law firm in Miami uh, named Holland and Knight. And there was a, uh, I was a, a, basically a, a, a service office services um, runner. So I was helping the lawyers with, um, you know, copies and, and doing and running at the time uh, you had to submit files to the court uh, manually and physically today. It's all, it's all electronic and digital. Um, and if you had to send something to a, another lawyer uh, on, a, on, a, on a case, you'd have to run it over there. So I, I did a lot of that. And, and one of the lawyers uh, that, that worked at this law firm uh, was a lawyer. His name is uh, Raul Cosillo, and he was a Penn Law graduate. And as I was kind of learning the ropes, uh, I, I, got a, I started to build relationships with a lot of the different lawyers. And, and he was the head of recruiting for, for this law firm. And, and he was... Uh, basically, he's like the Pied Piper uh, for, for Penn Law uh, in Miami. Uh, he's got an incredible connection, an incredible amount of passion for, uh, for Penn Law. And, uh, and he, you know, he, from the moment he saw, I guess, some potential in me, he said, look, you need to go to law school. There's only one place for you to go. You're going to have the ability to, to go to you know, different schools because you have good grades. And I, I did well in the LSAT. Um, and he's like, you got to go to Penn Law. That's the place to be. You're going to love it. Um, you can't go anywhere else. Don't think about it. And so I applied uh, and got the got accepted to go to Penn Law. And and I kept hearing Raul in my ear. You got to go there. You got to go there. And, and I went to visit. I loved it. And uh, and and that's where I went to law school. So it, the the connection was, you know, a, an interesting one through a, a you know a colleague and and uh, you know a, a big boss at the time. And and I still have uh, a, a really strong relationship with Raul and. Uh, and he continues to be a good friend and, and mentor, um, even you know, thirty years uh, after all these events. That's that's astounding to hear, and I think that the idea that someone just saw the potential in you and was like, okay, and thankfully he was a pendulum and was like, all right, we we need people like this. And <laughs> and one of the things as I was kind of like reading up about the many people who said things about you who or during some of your interviews when they were asked to give a quote they always mentioned that you're a very people person that you're someone who really connects with those around you and is very collaborative and you yourself said that even though the idea or kind of like in theory going to law school at Penn is something that's extremely competitive because you know you on one side it's Penn on the other side it's law school you actually had a very collaborative experience you actually had a lot of camaraderie you brought together a lot of friends tell us a little bit about your time at Penn and how they kind of like shaped that did did it make you love collaboration more or did you make did it make you want to murder all of your classmates like i think some friends i know would want to so yeah i had i had an incredible time at penn at penn law it was a it was a great experience um i i, I had a i mean I, I read there's all sorts of anyone out there considering going to law school there's there's plenty of books that um that that kind of uh dramatize the the experience of the first year which is supposed to be the most intense you know lots of reading and you know staying late at night up up at night in the library and then going into the to class and suffering at the at the you know at the hands of a professor you know uh, deploying the socratic method i i loved it i i okay what's that scaring me a little here but it's okay it's but that's what you read i mean there's plenty of books out there right and and that's that's what you read and which what i thought and and i went in with that uh kind of image and picture but everything i've done uh, up or i had done up until that moment had been you know in collaboration i i always like to you know build friendships and relationships and you know it's it's natural for me and i i find it beneficial uh, to to be able to work together with people, it, it, to me, it's it's more enjoyable. I always think about how to how to make the most of every moment and have fun in it. And so we, you know, you you find like-minded people um, anywhere you go, and and that's where where I ended up, um, you know, at Penn with some you know amazing friends, um, Steve Weissman and and Tony Calcagni and Lance D'Amico and and many others that uh, uh, that we were there in school together, and we you know we studied together. Uh, we we uh, played sports together. We had a softball team. We had a, a flag football team that made it to the the final game, the championship, but but we lost it on on the final play. Um, so, but we still have those memories, and we catch up and talk about it. Uh, you know, ever since. Um, we also had I, I also had some incredible professors. I, I remember uh, vividly um, in in first year uh, civil civil procedure 
uh, with, with Professor Burbank, a, an incredible professor. I, I think he just retired recently. Um, but, but there were some really um, renowned, world-renowned uh, legal scholars at, uh, at Penn Law. There still are today. And, uh, and for me, it was a privilege and, and an honor. And I, I felt very proud to be able to say that I was you know, part of the, the Penn Law community and, and part of this incredible University of Pennsylvania. My son is a, is a, is a junior in, uh, in Penn undergrad, and he's studying at the Arts and Sciences in Econ uh, and, uh, and in Wharton doing a, a minor in real estate development. You know, the, you, you guys, all of you that are out there that are part of the Penn community, whether you're in undergrad or, or law school or MBA or what have you, you should be so proud. It's an incredible community and there's an incredible network. And I think that's one of the most important benefits of being at a school like, like Penn is, is building those networks because they're not only for the, the three or four or five years that you're on campus. It, they, they're for, the life, for your lifetime. You're going to be able to tap into them, lean on them, uh, reach out to them for other contacts. I mean, the, anybody who calls uh, me that, that either went to my high school uh, or went to uh, Tulane or Marist, or went to Penn, I pick up the phone automatically. Doesn't matter uh, who, what what year they're from and, and whether I know them. Um, I'll, I'll I'll pick up the phone and talk and find out what it is that they need, and and and, and I'm happy to help. And I think it's the same for others on the other on the other line. So uh, take advantage of that. It's a big big part of the education you're getting, and it's a, a big part of the tuition that you pay to uh, to go to these incredible to this incredible school. Well, thank you. And I think it's testament by the fact that you're on this show. So it means you answered my text at the very least. And we're very, very grateful to have you here. So you did do, I would say, the, the amazing job of being a brilliant Penn grad. You scored a job after that at, I think, the place you were interning. And I think you started off as um, uh, in, in the law field. You became a litigator. Why then later choose to apply to go to Burger King? And um, I, I remember recalling reading that when you wanted to apply for the job, you didn't have ne like necessarily the prerequisites for the yeah. kind of like corporate law job at Burger King. So why in the first place did you decide, OK, you know what, let me try something different from the regular uh, world of law? And how did it go? Like, how, what was your internal process when, when applying? Were you nervous? Were you just like, I'm going to throw my hat in it? Or were you like, you know what, I'm a shoe and they're going to like, they're going to love me in a way. Like, what were you like thinking going in? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot, lot to it there, but the, 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 the reason why I decided to apply to Burger King in the first place was I, I was getting to the point uh, at the law firm where I was, you know, up, up for partnership in the, in the next six to 12 months. So I was about six, six and a half years into my my uh, private law practice, and that's the that's the time when you are considered for partnership. And and I, you know, I decided, or I was at the point of of making a decision on whether I wanted to do that for, you know, for another ten years, or if if it was a, a time for a change. And so I I actually went uh, on a on a retreat with my church uh, at the time. It was um, some some beautiful weekend. In Miami, and uh, and I, I remember thinking about it quite a bit during the the retreat, and I and one of the probably the main driver was was my family. I wasn't spending a lot of time with my family. I had a my daughter was born in 90, 96, so this would have been she would have been three and a half years old, and I really wasn't um, spending the, the quality time that I wanted to with her with her and my and my wife as well. So I, I I felt that I needed a change to be able to spend more quality time uh, at home and also kind of tap into the things that that are that are kind of more consistent with my skill set i was a litigator um, and and i felt that i could be much more productive in a or constructive in a in a role where i could use my commercial skills um, more so than my my advocacy skills so anyhow um i i come back from that retreat and i i tell my wife uh, i said look you know i'm I made the decision. I don't know what I want to do, but I know I don't want to do this anymore. Um, she, and so we had a long conversation and, and she's a lawyer as well. So then like two days later, um, she calls me and this is, you know, pre pre internet or, or, or pre when the internet was, was, uh, you know, quite useful as it is today. Uh, she calls me and says, Hey, you know, I was reading the, the local newspaper and there, there, there's a job offering for an in-house lawyer. So I, you know, she, I, I went to find it um opened up and it was for burger king it was burger king corporation is hiring a lawyer uh and and then i read the, the job description and they're looking for a lawyer that has patent law uh, corporate law uh, supply chain 
uh, trademark and a few other things, none of which I, I had ever done. I had no idea. I never, I never took a class on it and I never did or handled anything related to any of the uh, specialized areas that they were talking about. So I was like, Annie, this is not for me. This is they're looking for somebody else. And she's like, look, don't worry about it. You'll figure it out. Um, you're really good. You're smart and, and you have you know, really good people skills, they're going to love you. And they're, you're, you're going to figure out how to do the, those particular things. Um, just give it a shot. And uh, so she, you know, she motivated me, inspired me to do it. And then we remembered that, that I had a good friend uh, that served, uh, this goes back to the, the importance of networks and relationships, uh, a friend who um, served on the, on, a, on the Dade County Bar Association Young Lawyers Division. That's how old we, this is how long ago it was. Uh, her name is Jill Granite. She and I uh, served on the same board and she worked at Burger King. She had just joined Burger King as a real estate lawyer. So I called her and I said, hey, Jill, listen, I, I saw the, this position you guys are posting at Burger King. He said, she's like, yeah. And I said, well, I'd like to apply for it. She's like, yeah, but you don't do any of these things. And I said, don't worry about it. Look, just make sure that the hiring lawyer, um, whoever it is, gets my resume and and tell him or her to give me a shot. And she's like, all right, I'll give it a shot, but it's unlikely. I said, don't worry about it. If, if, if I get a shot at, at an interview, I'll take it from there. And, and so she did, the interview process went well, the lawyer, the, the hiring lawyer you know, said, look, you, you don't have the qualifications, but you're, you know, you know, you're really good. You sound like you have a, you know, good, good broad experience. And, it, you know, I went through a bunch of different interviews and, and I ended up getting the job. And, and today, this is 21 years ago, Today, Jill, who introduced me to the, you know, or gave me the chance to come in, she's our general counsel. So she's the head of legal for the entire company. And um, she tells the story all the time. She says, look, he, and I'm her, I'm her supervisor, I'm her boss now, right? And she's like, he wouldn't be here if it wasn't for me. So he's, he thanks me every day for this opportunity. So anyhow, it's a, it's a, a, a funny anecdote in a, in a long journey, but, but again, important element of that is there's two things that are, I think, or at least two things that are important. One is um, the, the networks that you build and the relationships that you build over time, um, they're, they're not just for, for friendships, right? I mean, if you need help, um, if, if, if they need help, um, that's what you're there for. So pick up the phone and ask or pick up the phone and listen, because um, it's really important. That's what you do. That's why you build the relationships and that's what these lifetime relationships are, are all about. And two is that you need to to take risks and 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 you know if you fail it's okay um, you'll never know if you're going to get a chance to to do something really special if you don't give it a shot so it would have been very easy um, and and actually quite logical to say look I can't apply for that job because I don't meet any of those qualifications but but in in this scenario in this situation um, I was able to and you know it wasn't that I was kind of finagling my way through it, I was able to say, look, I understand I don't know any of these things. I told the truth, but I can, what, what you need is someone who can build relationships with the clients. I can learn the content. I can study it. Um, and if it gets really complicated, you know, I'm sure we use outside lawyers to help us solve problems. But, but you, what, you need, what you need is somebody who can help manage the, the team and the business, et cetera. And so I, that's what I did. And, um, and that's what I've done, you know, basically throughout my entire life. And, and Thankfully, you know, knock on wood, it's been it's been a recipe for for some success over over time. That's a beautiful story, simply because there are lots of moving parts. Yes, connections are there, and like there's a lot of like um, like experience needed, or sometimes like it's what you pitch. But at the end of the day, I think it boils down to who you are and whether you on like in that moment where you get the opportunity can I don't know convince the other person or to show them that you're serious about something that you can actually take the role and take the responsibility and run with it and this is something that you did not just i think in switching over to uh, being part of the burger king team but also later when you wanted to move from law to operations within the organization itself if i'm not mistaken and again it's it's taking a risk in something that you do not know much about something new many people would, would even hesitate like hesitate like as you said to put yourself forward to say that, okay, I don't have this experience, let me try anyway. What do you think made you different from all of these people that enabled you to, number one, at least have that thought that you should do something different? Was it just passion for trying new things? And number two, what do you think was the difference that other people saw in you that 
enable them to give you this trust? Yeah, I, look, it's it's hard to to comment on how you know what others uh, see in you, but yeah. um, but I, I I think what what's been kind of a consistent theme and 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 um, kind of an approach in, in my in my journey over the years is is that I, I, my I'm, I'm very optimistic. I I feel very comfortable in in almost every scenario and and feel that I can get to the best possible outcome um, in in any scenario. And not because I'm the smartest, but because I I'm willing to work harder than anybody. Um, I don't care who gets credit. I'm, I just, I care most about achieving the goal or winning um, and, you know, and trying to find people that have the same mindset and approach and bringing them together to, you know, achieve that common goal. Um, I, I understand uh, my strengths uh, and, and I tap into them very consistently and regularly. I know as well my weaknesses and, you know, I, I've always been a believer in, in, in knowing those as well, but and then people spend a lot of time trying to fix them or trying to, you know, kind of polish those weaknesses. And over time, I, I, I think I'm less of a believer in, in trying to, you know, be a complete, you know, 100% in every uh, area because it's impossible. I, I think you need to be really, you need to understand your strengths and build on them and, and use those uh, to your benefit and then be aware of your weaknesses and then make sure you complement uh, them with, uh, with with either people or tools that can that can address those those weaknesses or shortcomings or opportunities. Um, I the other piece that has always been a, a uh, in my view uh, an important element of, of how I come to the table is is acting like an owner, believe you know behaving and 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 taking decisions and and acting and working as if it was your business or if it was you know your that the topic that you're dealing with is is yours right you're making a decision that's for you and your family or for you personally when you act like an owner and you behave like an owner you 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 behave very differently than than an employee for example i i, I talk about this quite a bit with my team and the broader team at, at at our company at restaurant brands international that you know owners behave differently. Uh, if you're an employee, um, you know you you get a call on a Saturday. You may not pick up the call, right? You might not take the email. You may not take the text because hey, you know I'm not I'm, I don't work on Saturdays. Owners don't behave that way. Owners behave very differently. If the if there's something going on at the at the shop on Saturday morning, you're going to be there. You have to be there. It's yours. Um, there's no one else to uh, to lean on, and so. Uh, I, I think that that behavior as an owner is so powerful, um, and I, I, I didn't really quite articulate it that way, and I, I didn't really put my finger on it. But over the years, um, I've seen that 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 distinction between employees and owners, and uh, and I think acting like an owner and bringing that mindset every day to to what you do, whether you're starting at the low end of the totem pole or you're you know the the CEO of a publicly traded company. That mindset is huge, um, and and so I think those things are things that I've brought consistently over the years uh, to everything I do. Do it optimistically, you know. Try to t you know take risks. Uh, try to find ways to collaborate and, and and do something bigger than what a single person can do. So teamwork and collaboration uh, to achieve something really big. Acting like an owner and and you know building on the strengths that you have. And when when you do these things consistently, I think people. Uh, take chances on you, and uh, and and that's been my case uh, since I was a kid, and it's I've been very fortunate and very lucky. All right, I think that's a brilliant answer. I've always been a bit advocate for what I call the entrepreneurship mindset. That it's not about running your own business or being the most important person. It's about do you step up and actually yeah. find solutions? Are you there on call? Are you there making things happen? Do you do you think like an entrepreneur no matter where you are, whether you're part of a team or whether you're the leader? I think you articulated that better than I ever could. But you also have had experience, especially during that initial time when you moved to operations, where you did everything in order to learn. I think you you went through the training, the ropes. You even uh, for a period of time, for a couple of months, did things such as like I don't know, making the burgers yourself, um, to manning the cash register, the drive-through. Why was that experience? Why did you do that in the first place? Go from 
law in the office to literally in the store and, and serving the customers directly. Like, was this part of a huge mastermind plan or was this just something to get in touch with what do you like the, the root of kind of like the operations? Why and how did it help? Yeah, yeah it, it certainly wasn't a mastermind plan. Um, it. It's, it's funny because when, when uh, I, I came to, to Burger King to be an in-house lawyer and actually the the I worked on a big transaction at the time Burger King was owned by Diageo. Um, so in 2000, when I joined, it was owned by by Diageo, which is the the spirits company out of the out of the UK that, that owns um, Johnny Walker and, and a bunch of really well-known global uh, spirits brands. Uh, in 2002, uh, we worked on the on the sale. I went there. I, actually, they announced it in 2000. In 2002, I was working on the sale of the company, and the and the company was sold to a private equity consortium, uh, a Goldman Sachs, Bain, and, and Texas Pacific. And I worked on that transaction. I was the the junior lawyer that did all the all the grunt work, uh, if you will, to get that transaction ready to close. And and we closed at the end of um, at the end of 2002. And then. Thereafter, it was kind of boring. There was there was a few things to, to work on at the at the close of the transaction, um, but then I started to to work on other things. And one of the things I worked on was in operations. And, and the the guy who who I supported in operations uh, became the the COO of the company, and he invited me to join uh, and become or, or join his team as a as an uh, an ops person. And I remember the conversation. He's like, look, you know, you, you, you don't really behave like a lawyer. You're a little bit different. Uh, I'm going to you know, change some things here and I'm going to build a really good team. And I think you'd be great in, in our team. Um, and and what what I'd like for you to do is, you know, learn some different areas of the business. And, and I said, look, I'm happy. Uh, let me think about it. Um, and and I went away, decided I wanted to do it, told him that I wanted to do it. But I told him, I don't want to be your lawyer. I don't want to be an in-house lawyer for operations. I want to learn operations. I want to go to the restaurants and, and do the training that a manager would do. And, uh, and so I did, I, I spent, uh, six, I, almost six months in restaurants in Miami, uh, you know, doing all sorts of different things, but, but essentially going through what, what was at the time called basic management training. I did food safety training. I did, um, you know, cashier training, drive-through training, Whopper board training. And, uh, it, it was, it was crazy. One, uh, one time, I was working in a restaurant um, near Dadeland Mall in Miami, and uh, I was working the Whopper station, making Whoppers, and with a trainer like hovering over my shoulder. In this particular restaurant, the the Whopper station was very close to the front counter, uh, probably no more than ten feet, uh, and it was like a I don't know Tuesday or Wednesday afternoon, around two o'clock because it was it was just after lunch, so it was relatively quiet, and. I see somebody come in, uh, a young woman comes in with a child uh, to the front counter to order something. So I look and I come back to what I'm doing. I have, meanwhile, I have this man, this training manager on top of me saying, no, you're doing it wrong. This, you gotta do this, you gotta do that. And I look again and I recognize the person. I'm like, oh my God, it's a friend of my sister's, my younger sister. So I, I'm, I, I, I tell myself I can't make eye contact she's gonna think you know I got fired or something um so I look like a I don't know what well, must have been it felt like a minute but it was probably like 10 or 15 seconds I look again and we make eye contact and I know she recognizes me and I recognize her and I kind of nod and I keep working and like three minutes later my phone I was wearing it was it was a Blackberry at the time it was on my hip and um it, it, it starts ringing and I can't because I'm working so I I missed a call i get another missed call three missed calls and then i when i take my break it's my sister and i call her and i said hey what's up and she's like did you get fired and i said no why she's like you're working at a burger king and i said yeah yeah and i had to i hadn't i didn't tell her i didn't tell anybody almost anybody i told my my wife my mom and my and my dad and my sister was like what, what's going on and so i explained to her uh but but that's kind of the you know it, it was not a glorious or glamorous transition. It was a, a real transition. I, I wanted to learn the business and wanted to learn uh, what it was to, to run a restaurant because if I was going to be uh, effective in, in helping in operations, I needed to know how to run a restaurant. And so it, it was super powerful. That experience was incredibly valuable for me. 
it gave me a tremendous appreciation for the the team members that we have in the restaurants the the incredible work that they do the fact that they're the the face of the brand and and they're we're only as successful as they are and so we can be really great at advertising and we can do a bunch of you know cool things on digital but the experiences that you you have in our restaurants through our team members is really the 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 version of the brand that you take home and so um you know understanding that and appreciating it and respecting it has been a big part of of the journey that I've been on since moving into operations as a result of that, of that experience. Absolutely brilliant. And I think anyone everywhere working at a Burger King right now feels a lot more confident knowing that the CEO of, of, of any of your brands actually has actually had that experience. I, I, there was a post going around a couple of days ago about how people who have transitioned from working like on the ground into the corporate world said that nothing is as grueling and as scary and as at times terrifying as actually manning the front desk and actually yeah. having to interact with customers. So it, it's a, like you have my admiration for going through that whole six months and I'm sure your employees and your team feels the exact same way. Uh, and I hope more CEOs follow in suit or more people taking on management positions follow in suit because I think that that's an absolutely amazing way to connect with those people in your team even now. You, but when you move from, I think, to your formal operations role, I think one of your first assignments as director of operation uh, services and programs was um, actually in something that we take for very seriously right now, but actually to raise standards of cleanliness, if I'm not mistaken, right, across the company. Yep. So you called it way ahead of time, pre-COVID. You, you knew this back then that this was important. But one of the things that people often, or at least from my perspective, people often hear about operations or even law sometimes is it can be a little bit of something that's dry or something that's like tough for people to understand or implement. But you seem to like, even in that first assignment, like the feedback that people remember back then is you made it really fun. You brought people together. You, you created awareness through actually um, interacting with the people around you. How was that first experience and how did that kind of like set the stage for you to ensure that when you implement things, you actually ensure that people follow through uh, because they want to, not because it's a policy, not because it's something that they have to do. Yeah, that 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 first experience, that the first big assignment when I moved into operations was uh, was we had Burger King at the time. Uh, this was two thousand and three. We there, there was a, a a news a documentary, a TV documentary on I think it was on on ABC on twenty twenty called uh dirty dining and they they looked at all the you know the top restaurant brands in the country they looked at a number of different um uh, data points and they and they determined you know one to ten or ten to one the the um the ones that were doing the worst from a cleanliness standpoint and and burger king was the worst uh, of that group um and that and that documentary investigation and so we you know, the, the guy who the, the person who was uh, the COO or the CEO at the time and, and then the COO, they're like, look, we, we, this is terrible. We got to do something about it. So we, you know, we, we took I took that that opportunity to really uh, build a, a, a platform with our team. We had an incredible team of, of people working on this um, and we we launched what probably today is the most um, intense and 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 food safe uh technical program that, that exists anywhere in the quick service restaurant industry and, and so many people that that join our business from the outside say look you know there's there's no one that has standards like you do on on cleanliness hand washing uh hygiene things that that today are so critical in the context of, of covid we were doing in 2003 2004 we we implemented that we i spent um, months and months learning the science behind it with, you know, different vendors and, and manufacturers of, clean, of cleaning uh, uh, ingredients and chemicals, um, hand sanitizer. No one used hand sanitizer in, in restaurants at the time. Uh, we did it starting in 2004. And, and it was cool because uh, one of the things that, that really helped is it, as I was building uh, credibility in, in the in the system. We had we had franchisees, we had employees that had 30 years experience in Burger King, working in restaurants for 30 years. I was like 35 years old, so I I, I could I could never I could never uh, replicate that. Right? I don't care how much I studied and, and worked. It would take me 30 years to get there. So I had to become an expert 
in something uh, and be better at something than anybody else. People had to come to me for, for, for information and I had to be prepared to provide it and help them. So I always tell people this, like when you're making a switch into something uh, that, that, that where experience and knowledge and, and kind of hands-on is so important, yeah, you, you, can't, you can't replicate. It's very hard to replicate that. It takes you years to do it. Um, but the thing you can do is you can outwork people. You can become an expert in you know, the, the procedures, the operations procedures uh, that are so important, and then try to find an area that you can become like the go-to person. And for me, it was fortunate that that, that came up and I was able to, to really uh, hone in on, on an area of the business that was so important for us at the time. And now, you know, fast forward almost 20 years later, um, we, when the pandemic hit, we, uh, we really leaned on, on our credentials in that area. We actually, like two days into the pandemic, I called our, our chief marketing officers for each of our brands, for Burger King, Tim Hortons and Popeyes and said, guys, we need, uh, we need to go out to the restaurants and we need to film new commercials like now, because we don't, you were, no one ever advertised like the basics this procedure. Yeah, the functional basics of, of the business. Drive through is you know relatively contactless and, and then all the cleaning procedures you have. We, you don't do commercials like that. You do commercials on food and other things. So we we went out and, and we did in, in like two days, uh, we, we shot new spots for, for each of the brands uh, and uh, and then came out with us. We were the first uh, brands to come out with advertising on, on drive-through procedures and cleanliness and hygiene. Uh, and it was, you know, we kind of reverted back to uh, those functional things that, that, that are kind of inherent and um, understood uh, about our, our brands and businesses that we're reliable, consistent, safe, um, very high standards. And, and that really helped at a moment when people were super unsure and, and really uh, concerned about, about what was gonna happen tomorrow. Um, so, uh, it, it was quite useful to uh, to have had that background and, uh, and and to be able to use it during the pandemic uh, 20 years later. And it's absolutely phenomenal to see the seeds that you planted in kind of like your first assignment in that position grew to something that I would say was defining during the last two years. So again, hats off to you for that foresight and and kind of like and to your your then CEO and CEO for, for knowing and addressing that problem. Brilliant. But yeah, I don't, I don't, to be honest, I don't, sorry to interrupt that. It, it, it's not some brilliant foresight that, that caused it. It's just, it's a lot of it is, is uh, just life, right? Like, it, you know, if, if you take, if you take things seriously and you work hard um, and you build relationships and you do the, you do the right thing, you behave the right way and you treat people correctly um, over time, you you build up a lot of points in your favor, right? It's just it's just the way life is. Um, if you do it the other way, you won't. And so I, I think I've been very lucky um, and fortunate, and things have worked out well because I've tried to keep the the right side of the balance sheet filled up with as many points as possible. Not that I think about it that way, but I've just been fortunate enough yeah. to, to have it. And and in hindsight, um, you know, the balls bounced favorably many times. I think because that side of the balance sheet is, it has more than the other side. Okay, very well said. I really like that explanation. How do you make sure that, like, like it's when it's us directly involved, when it's us overseeing something, we can ensure the standard of quality. We can ensure that it's all right. But part of like what makes Burger King and I think your other brands so like iconic is the fact that it's not just in the US, it's all around the world. Mm -hmm. And you do this through many partnerships with um, different providers in different countries. And I think a part of your career was actually traveling um, Europe at the very least and forming these partnerships with different people. And it was during this period where Burger King, I think, you know, uh, and the whole brand introduced this idea of partnering that you had that the whole business grew from, I think, 4,500 locations like outside the US like then to I think about 11,000 over today. And I think like yeah. it was yeah. an amazing period of growth. How do you build those kind of partnerships at such a global scale? What, what do you look for? What's important? Yeah, that was a, that, that was probably the, the funnest uh, stretch of time. I mean, I, I've had an incredible journey and I've done a, a lot of different things you know, in the US, uh, in global roles internationally. Uh, but but building uh, the brand and, and building partnerships um, from scratch, going to, uh, you know, in Russia, France, 
South Africa. Um, we've, we've done uh, new partnerships in Spain, Germany, the UK, um, China, Japan. Uh, there, there are countless uh, uh, opportunities in, in uh, Kazakhstan. I, one of the one of the the most unique experiences was going to Kazakhstan. They didn't have any uh, global brands there, Western QSR brands. They had they had many that were uh, replicas. Um, they they kind of they copied Pizza Hut. They copied McDonald's. They copied a bunch of places, but it wasn't. It was it was called something else, but it looked like it. And I, you know, we, we started Burger King there. We were the first ones to go. And we, we have, I don't know, 35, 40 restaurants now and, and doing quite well. Um, so it, it's, it's been a, an incredible journey. Um, and, and during that stretch of time, I think the, you know, the, the, the most important thing when you're building these partnerships uh, and, and, you know, the, the, and you're going to try to grow the Burger King brand uh, in, a number, in a number of places outside the U.S., you, you have to remember... I think there's two things that are critical. One is everywhere you go, um, they have a unique, I mean, you're from Malaysia. Uh, we have uh, Burger King uh, restaurants there. Um, we, we should have Popeye's restaurants soon and, uh, you know, and, and, and Tim Hortons as well, and hopefully Firehouse at some point. Um, but anywhere you go, um, each country, each you know, part of the world has its own unique uh, culture, sometimes different languages, experiences, their, the history is uh, quite different and relevant. And you need to understand it, right? It doesn't, doesn't mean you need to speak all these languages, but you need to understand and respect and appreciate the uniqueness and the differences uh, of each uh, place you're going to, because um, it, it will in part define the, the people you're dealing with, right? So you, you're, you, you, if you're gonna build a, a meaningful relationship, you need to respect and understand those those differences because they're they're critical. At the same time, you, know, you have to find the common ground, right? Um, there, there's, for example, everybody likes to be recognized. Doesn't matter where you're from. Um, you're from London, uh, or from Singapore, or from um, Sao Paulo, Brazil, wherever you're from. That people like to be recognized. Um, everyone likes to be successful. I mean, the definition of success is different, but everyone likes to be successful. Um, you know, there, there's, uh, in a business standpoint in, in our world, for example, operations, which is one, one of the reasons, coming back to a question you asked earlier, operations, procedures, like how to deliver or how to make a sandwich, how to deliver the food to the customer, how to manage a drive-through, procedures are basically culture agnostic, right? It doesn't matter if you're in Spain or or the Philippines, um, the, the procedure for preparing a Whopper is the same. It should be. There's no reason, uh, rational reason to have a different procedure simply because you're in a different country with different languages. So um, I, I think understanding those and respecting the differences, but then recognizing that there's a bunch of things that are common, um, uh, that, that's for me uh, has been really important and it's been something that has helped me um, in dealing with the international uh, parts of the business uh, and, and has allowed me to, to build very strong uh, relationships along with many folks on our team, but build strong relationships and, and then build really strong partnerships. You have to also uh, find common, in, in those common um, threads, you have to find uh, people that share your um, kind of high standards, right? If, 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 if there, and that's not a cultural thing. There's people in, in I don't know, I'm picking a, uh, in Japan that have super high standards and there's people in Japan that have low standards. Uh, and it's the same in Malaysia, it's the same in the US, it's the same in Canada. That's a, that's a universal truth. And so um, you have to find the right people in those countries to be the representatives of your brand to move forward. And that requires patience, diligence, persistence, and and uh, you all, and you have to understand people, right? It, it's not a commercial transaction. It's not a deal like signing a contract is irrelevant. It's making sure you find a good partner to do to do the work alongside with you for the coming, you know, ten years, twenty years, thirty years, and that's that's the journey that that uh, that we've been on to build our international business, and that's why we're we're so. 
excited about the, the growth prospects of our company because we have these great partners with this, these great brands and they're you know fast growing and developing uh, all around the world. Okay, very, very well said. And I think the other unique part about uh, RBI is that you don't just have one dis like distinct specific brand, you have many different brands which all have their own feel, their own culture. And you saw kind of like the transition in your own career from the inside how Burger King transformed into RBIs. It merged with Tim Hortons in 2014, acquired Popeyes in 2017. What were the difficulties navigating these various cultures and audiences and structures of three different brands? I think adding a fourth now. Um, and how do you make sure that each of them maintain their uniqueness um, as they now become part of a larger group. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's probably been the, the hardest thing because we felt and and I feel um, that that it's important to have one culture in the company. Um, yeah. While at the same time, you know, maintaining the kind of the 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 DNA of each brand. So the 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 brand the brand DNA. Um, has a lot to do with what you see in the restaurants, including product quality, um, the, the restaurant uh, operate, the experience, the technology, the look and feel. Um, the culture of, of the company, we felt, and I feel that, that, that you, you can have a common culture that, that permeates uh, throughout the, the entire organization through different brands. And we've taken um, different elements of that from uh, from each of the brands. So the, the, the culture that we have today at, at RBI is a, is an amalgamation of what we always, always felt since the beginning, since the acquisition of, of BK in 2010, things like ownership, uh, dreaming big meritocracy. These were like fundamental elements of the culture from day one. Um, we, we kind of peppered it or, um, seasoned it with things that we picked up from Tim Hortons and, and Popeyes, like creativity and innovation, diversity uh, being an important part of it. Hard, you know, being a good, per hardworking, good person. Uh, so, so we've we we modified and and updated our our, our values as a company, um, which form a big a big part of our culture. Uh, in 2019, end of 19. Um, beginning of 20, right before the pandemic. And uh, it, it was a refresh of things that were critical and kind of fundamental from day one, but also what we saw uh, come along uh, from, from the acquisitions and the mergers uh, with, with Tim's and, and Popeye's. And now as we, we, you know, the fourth brand that we just acquired, uh, we closed the transaction in, this, in the middle of December is Firehouse Subs. It's out of Jacksonville, Florida. It's an awesome brand. It's 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 small. It's twelve hundred restaurants um, today, but we think it has huge potential. And and they've they built a it's a twenty seven year old brand. It started in nineteen ninety four in Jacksonville. They built an awesome business. Um, but but more importantly, their purpose is uh, is even more important to them than than selling subs. They um, they have a purpose that's focused on public safety, and they they have a foundation that's raised about seventy million dollars and and contributed like sixty five plus million dollars in in um, in grants uh, and with uh, uh, public safety equipment that they jaws of life uh, boats um, all sorts of different things that, that are used by fire departments and police departments uh, all around the country all around the US and Canada uh, and and they put that purpose uh, public safety because the founders were two firemen uh, they put that purpose uh, ahead of everything else and and as a result the brand, in all the met metrics out there on on uh, brand health and 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 brand love, is is one of the top sandwich brands in in the country um, by by leaps and bounds. And so we're really excited, and that's something now we're going to bring into, you know, more, even more to the fore uh, of of our other three brands because we see the power of it in, in the work that we've done uh, in advance of the acquisition. All right, I think you're totally right, and I think. Especially now, I, I don't know if it's because we're moving into the world of Gen Z where everything like is, is as important as kind of like the effect it has on the people around it, on the environment around it, on what's the social good behind every brand. Because I feel like we, we're, we as people are becoming a lot more conscious of where our carbon footprint is, what is the effect we have through our spending. And I think that 
RBI in general has been extremely inspirational, I think has been a leader in kind of like taking the steps and addressing these recent social and environmental issues. And these can be things that are so easy, that, that could be so easy to just brush off. Like one of the things you did was introduce, I think, plant-based alternatives for like some of your food, uh, which, which typically would be meat and all of that. So these are just things that you could easily brush off as, oh, people are, some people are doing this, like not everyone wants a plant-based initiative. We've always done things like this. But you actually take the effort as a brand, as a company, to listen to the consumers, to see where things are going, to even care about the environment, um, I think, which is a huge thing. And it's not something that I think we should take lightly. Mm -hmm. And I think it's absolutely brilliant. You even have, I think, a net zero emissions by 2050 goal, That's which, right. yeah, which, which is brilliant. But why do you think this is so important right now? Uh, as a business to take this standpoint. I mean, many business owners worry that if they focus too much on this, they lose out on the profits, they lose out on kind of like what's always made them, them. why the important to pivot to addressing these issues. Yeah, like the, the, the re it's simple. Um, and, and it should be the starting point of any decision that that uh, you take as a leader for a business is, is what is the what does the guest want? What does the consumer want? Right. And uh, I think more than five, 10 years ago, there, there may have been, um, uh, you know, some activity and, and some movement in, in the direction of, of addressing, um, you know, sustainability and, and, and doing the right thing for the environment. Um, but for the most part, you know, a decade ago, people were thinking about it from an investor relations standpoint or from a, um, a public relations standpoint. They were thinking about it defensively. Um, over time, it's become more and more clear that guests care about it. Um, and, and in fact, employees care about it. When I, I, I spend a lot of time recruiting, uh, I go to universities uh, and I go to Tulane, I go to Penn uh, and, and other schools as well around the country to, to interview. And I do this internationally as well. And I don't know, the, of the first five questions, two or three typically are uh, about uh, our position on, on sustainability. What are we doing about it? What are we do what's, our, what's our carbon footprint? What are we doing about, uh, you know, to, where, where are we gonna, when are we gonna get to net zero emissions? I mean, people care about it. Um, it's important to them. There's more information available. People have access to more information and people are, are more concerned today about this than, uh, than they, they were maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago. And so our, my view on it and our view on it is if it's important to our guests, it's important to us. Um, and, and so we went, uh, for, you know, for the last two and a half years, we've been on a journey to bring this to the fore. We, we launched our restaurant brands for good platform. Uh, it, you can you can see it at rbi.com backslash sustainability, and and you have all the information there that that we've uh, started this journey on over the last uh, couple of years, and and we've set really ambitious goals for the company around food, planet, people, and communities, and uh, and feel very passionate about it. I I, um, I recently there's a there's a book out there that just came out uh, called Net Positive uh, from that's written by Paul Pullman, uh, formerly of Unilever, that that gives you the uh, a pretty compelling argument that it's not just the right thing to do, but it's also uh, from a planet standpoint, but it's also the right thing to do for your business, that there, there is a, a, a higher return uh, on equity and, and invested capital over time when you do the right thing um, uh, in, in, in these areas of food planet and, and, and people and communities. So we're passionate about it. We believe in it and we think it's the right thing to do for our business, for our company, and, and most importantly for our consumers. Okay, that means really a lot to hear. And I think there was even a study published by Wharton recently about kind of like the effects that this importance on ESG is going to have and take place on kind of like the financial impact on businesses mm -hmm. moving forward. So again, I think you guys are ahead of the curve a little and I hope more companies follow in suit. It's something that I personally have been very passionate about and I love that part where you said it's not about doing things like reactionary. It's not just something from a public relations standpoint anymore. It's something that becomes integral at every layer of the business. Yeah. And I hope more of the companies that I, I'm going to send this to all of the companies I've been working with and just say like, hey, this amazing person said this, I think you should listen. But no, I think very well said. And I know we're almost at the end of our interview, but I would like to ask one last question simply because everything that I think can that can be found about you, any interview that you've given, articles written about you, always describe you as the person that brings teams together, someone who 
inspires just by kind of like your love for the people around you, for your team, for your employees. And you've been a constant champion on focusing on kind of like empowering, building and engaging your team. But we also know that the last, I think, almost two years have been very tough on like restaurants, businesses, especially in the F&B industry, or actually any business who has a store because everything's been either on lockdown or with um, very stringent um, rules and regulations. Mm -hmm. How has it been as, as kind of a leader of this huge company, balancing on one side the turmoil or business turmoil in a sense where there's an effect on work, but also having to take care of kind of like the well-being, the emotional well-being of your employees and balancing the both. Because it's been something that's been tough the last two years, not just in a professional capacity, but also in a personal capacity. Has How do you approach all of that as a single leader, like looking at both sides? Yeah, look, uh, my my view on that uh, and kind of my, my learnings over the years, especially over the last couple of years, is that the the output is is the business performance, right? Uh, the results that you see financially and, you know, the sales figures and all these sorts of things, that, that's an output of, of doing the, the, the right things, at, you know, earlier in the stage in, in the journey, right? And, and the most important piece is the people, um, you know, ha having the right people, taking care of them, having clarity, you know, clarity of purpose for them, communicating well, engaging them, making sure that that they feel part of the, the the team and the family that you're creating. And so when when the pandemic, it's always it's been my philosophy and my approach for you know forever. Um, and and when the pandemic hit and we started to see the impact, you know, we, we started to deal with it in China because we have a big business in China back in January. And then we saw it hit Italy uh, and then Western Europe. And, and we knew it was coming to, to North America, which is where we have our biggest business. So we were somewhat prepared kind of based on what we had seen. And, uh, and early on, we I, I decided, I, I grabbed a couple of uh, our, our team leaders uh, and, and leadership folks. Um, and we talked about what we wanted to do and how we would move forward in, in this environment. And the conclusion of that one hour meeting was, look, the, the, we don't know what's gonna happen. We don't know what's gonna uh, uh, kind of transpire over the next couple of days, weeks. We don't know if this is gonna be a one week thing or a 10 year thing, who knows? Um, we're gonna face unprecedented challenges. We're gonna be dealing with things we've never dealt with before. We're gonna be on in a fire drill constantly. Um, we need to have our, uh, our values as our, as the anchor for every decision we make. And one of our most important uh, values is, is, you know, be a hardworking, good person, do the right thing. Um, like, and think about it from, from our team's standpoint. So anchoring every decision, like using as a North star, that was so important. And we, you know, we made decisions around protecting our team members and franchisees and guests, you know, health and safety standards. You know, we, we leaned into, um, you know, many uh, different aspects that, that helped us uh, do the right thing in the most difficult of circumstances. And coming out of it, um, I think we, we, become, we become more um, powerful as an organization. We, we got um, designated as a great place to work in 2020. And now again in 2021 for all four of our offices. So that it was the first time we got that designation. It's it's a an official designation that we're very very I'm very proud of, and I think our entire team is. We, were, we just had a, a town hall this morning uh, with everybody to to share and celebrate the fact that, that we got it again in 2021. Um, we also took bold steps in um, in 2020 around diversity. Um, you know, I, I sent out a, a, an open letter in 2020. I sent out like two or three or four open letters on different topics, including uh, diversity and our commitment to, diverse, to diversity I shared in the, in the summer of 2020. Um, so these were um, tough moments. Um, didn't wasn't clear what was gonna happen in the business, but what was clear is that if we took care of our people, did the right thing for 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 the long term, and and and, and inserted purpose into our organization, including around diversity and around sustainability, that we would come out of it stronger, and uh, and that's turned out to be the case. Okay, very very well said, and I think that 
all business owners and CEOs should take a masterclass from you at the very least of how do they navigate tough times and good times as well. Because I personally thought this conversation has been very enlightening. I think our audience feels the same way. And thank you so much for actually joining us and having this conversation. I only hope it has been at least a little bit as fun as it has been for you, as it's been for us listening and learning from your experiences. I've really enjoyed it, Harsha. Thanks so much. Uh, it's been an honor to be here with you. Congrats on all your success with uh, with your organization. And uh, I wish you the best of luck and and a big hello and good night to uh, to all my my uh, friends out there at Penn. Look forward to seeing you soon. Well, thank you so much for joining us. For all of our audience, you guys have been phenomenal. Uh, today's been Changing Reality. If there's any questions that you have about today's session, if there's anything you want to talk about, do make sure to leave it in the comments. And with that, unfortunately, our session for today draws to a close. And we'll see you guys again next week at 10 p.m. ET. Bye. See you on Thursdays. Bye-bye. Thank you. You're listening to Changing Reality. Changing Reality where we bend reality all across the world. Only on WQHS Radio.